Hello and welcome to What We Couldn't Say on Sunday. I'm Ross and I'm here with Sam. The, uh, the OGs are back. That's right. The original two pastors. That's right, man. Um, Daniel is working on his sermon for next week, so we had to sneak this one in before I go on my prayer retreat. Hmm. That's right. So please be praying. Yeah, pray for me as I, I'm on this prayer retreat, and I really want to see God and seek God for your behalf and for my own intimacy, so that would be wonderful. I'd, I'd love that. That's right. Well, thank you for preaching a mighty sermon on Sunday. Um, it was clear that your text affected you, which led you to affect us. Mm. And um, just want to ask you, brother, just to remind us, what, what did you say on Sunday? So the main point of the sermon, uh, which I believe is is ultimately the main point of what we see the text is trying to point us to, is that we must marvel at the absurd humility of Jesus. Mm. And I try to say that over and over again, and I try to define absurd. And I use that word carefully because... When we think about the word uh, nativity and Jesus's birth, it can be very cute and sentimental. And there is one sense that it should be very sentimental and sweet and precious to us, but it's, it definitely wasn't cute. It was a humiliation. It was tragedy. It was disgusting in many ways. And in that, so I use the word absurd, which just the basic definition is like inappropriate. Um, uh, what was the other words? Uh, um uncalled for, hmm. um, just wildly, oh, geez, I, I got to, let me, let me pull this it's up. It's like undeserved or, or yeah. unreasonable almost. Yeah. Or? I'm so glad that I memorized my sermon. <clears throat> wildly unreasonable. Mm. That was the word I was gra- gra- asking for. Illogical, inappropriate. And so when you look at the incarnation of Jesus as a baby in the birthplace, it's just absurd, wildly illogical. Doesn't make sense, and so uh, the reason why it doesn't make sense is not only um, is it because he's God, um, and 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 God deserves the best the world has to offer, and even the wor- the world's best isn't even good enough for him, and yet he got our worst. But Luke is purposely trying to contrast him with Caesar. When I say contrast, I mean he's trying to show a comparison. So in the very beginning of the the chapter, he zooms out to this global ruler who's high and mighty and powerful and celebrated. And some people call Caesar Augustus the savior of the world. Mm. He brought peace to the world. He's the son of God because he deified his father, Julius Caesar. Mm. And so you go to this big picture of the greatest ruler of the world, quote unquote, and then zoom into this very small town, Bethlehem, which Micah 5 says is just... Is, is small even in Israel's scope. Right. So compared to Rome, I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's the right. outback or whatever. It's, it's nothing. And yet this very small town with this small, unknown, obscure Jewish family is going to come a ruler who is from days past, mm-hmm. as Micah 5, 2 says, who's going to rule and make all things right and bring peace to the whole world. Mm-hmm. Those whom God is pleased with, we'll see in this next passage um, for next week in Luke. But... The contrast is striking because you would think that Caesar, he, I mean, Caesar deserved the world and he would get, you know, you would expect him to be born in a palace and. I'm sorry, Jesus? Uh, you well, well, Caesar, that's what you would expect from a Caesar. Okay. And yet Jesus is greater than Caesar. Right. And we know that if you've been reading the text in Luke, and yet he gets the opposite of what even the best of the world should get. Mm-hmm. He gets the worst. And so I kind of trace the humiliation of Christ in being just even becoming a man and then becoming a baby and then becoming um, just even where he was born. Just mm-hmm. the birthplace being uh, being placed in a feeding trough that no, none of us would be comfortable putting our babies in. 
Right. I mean, none of us. I mean, um, and so I just wanted us to marvel and just freshly worship our humble king and embrace the humility of the king for our own lives because mm-hmm. we can all be prone towards pride and our culture celebrates pride in many ways. And, and so, yeah, that was that was the main point of where I was going. And I, and I hope all of us did go there where we worshiped and we were freshly moved by the humility of Christ. Right. Absurd humility. Right. Yeah, it's so so good how you emphasize how shocking it is when we really consider the circumstances Christ was born into. Mm. Um, because um, because it's shocking how sinful we are, and like that's Him really coming down into our cursed, sinful condition. Like He came all the way down to meet us where we're at. Yeah, um, a Messiah who came at a high level wouldn't have been able to meet us where we're at. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I was really ministered to by that. Um, love to get into now what you couldn't say on Sunday. Um, yeah. There's a few topics we're going to get into here. Um, I meant to say this at the top of the hour, but um, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God over earthly rulers. The fourth question that, that Sam teased us all with um, about how our lives should change in light of Christ's humiliation. And, and third, we're, we're going to talk about the mystery of the incarnation. So let's start off with the first one. Um, mm-hmm. Would you please talk more about the sovereignty of God over earthly rulers? So throughout the Bible, we see a reoccurring pattern that the ruler of the world, whether it's Pharaoh or it's Cyrus of Persia or it's Caesar Augustus, all are under God's mighty plan and rule Mm. and under his thumb. And even though they may be subjecting God's people for a season, God is using even their wickedness, their cruelty, their greed to fit into their plan. So they think they're just doing what they want to do. But Mm -hmm. in fact, while God is maintaining their free choices, God is sovereignly moving about this perfect plan that he has for his people and his, through his people bless the whole world. Mm -hmm. So you see that with um, that happening with Pharaoh and his dreams and Joseph and, and saving his people with food. You see that later on also with Cyrus where he um, calls uh, the people, all the peoples to kind of return to their home line, home, homes and to even give them like stipends to like build their worship sites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's the Persian king that's right. who released the Israelites from captivity yep. in Babylon. Right, 70 years yep. after the Lord said they'd be in exile for 70 years. Mm-hmm. So he, God keeps to his timetable and perfectly through these these rulers and, and which is so striking is that these rulers are literally the most powerful men in the world at the time. Mm. And yet even them they're as Proverbs 21, one says the King's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. Mm. And so this is important as we look at Luke because Caesar Augustus is his empire is, he's, has even a further reach, I believe than the Persian Empire. Sure. And and yet, so he has even more power, more wealth, and yet he too is under God's sovereign plan. And so he's doing the census in order to create money uh, to be able to tax people. And also maybe you, you kind of connected this to uh, David, right? Yes. Um, David's census, right, was a sin because he kind of wanted to look at all his numbers of his mighty men and all the people and kind of take stock mm-hmm. and take pride in his great vast 
kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. I think when we hear the word census in Luke, if we have an Old Testament biblical backdrop, we shouldn't think, oh, this is just a good idea Mm -hmm. for a government to do. We should think this is the pride of man exalting Mm -hmm. itself by measuring its worth and Mm -hmm. value. That's right. Rather than acknowledging God's worth and value. Yeah. And so God is using the hubris, the pride, the arrogance, and the greed of Caesar Augustus to actually bring about his good plans. Mm. And if he were, wouldn't have done that, Joseph and Mary wouldn't have gone to Bethlehem and the f- prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled. Right. And so obviously God could make it happen another way, but it's just amazing. And this is a great take-home point for us is that in our age where there's so many crazy current affairs going on, we can great take, take great hope that even in the wickedness of rulers, God can use that to bring about his plans. God is meaning to bring yes. it out for his good plans. He's not even just adjusting and making, um, you know, reactions towards evil plans. He's actually working out in a mysterious way while maintaining their choices and his sovereign plans. That's right. So if you see something in the news and you're like, oh, man, Trump is so blank or that that one ruler is so untrustworthy or what what are we going to do? God is using even their brokenness and their sinfulness to bring about his good plans. And so yes. we can take great hope. This is not anything new. In fact, you could even argue that these rulers back then had more power in many ways. Like they didn't have checks and balances like we do, right? There's, they didn't have, everyone didn't have nuclear bombs to be able to keep the other people in check. In fact, people it's are absolute more. Absolute monarchy. Yeah, absolute monarchy. Yeah. No limitations in, in, in many ways. And yeah, we have more limitations now. But so, so if, if you tend towards anxiety and fear as you see all these new uh, news events and you're fearful for the 2020, if Trump gets elected or someone else gets elected, oh, everything's going to be ruined. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. God's got this, you know? That's right. He's got this. And he, he's going to work out, even in their good or their bad, yep. his plan. And, and I think one verse just for us to keep in mind that just so clearly demonstrates this truth is from Acts 4, 27 and 28. Yes. Um, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So the king of the Jewish people and the king of the Gentile people along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, here it is, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestined to use the rulers in Jesus' day to put him to death so that he could save billions and billions of people. Mm -hmm. And God has works similarly in history today through the corrupt evil of governments and rulers to bring about his good purposes. Yeah. What's nice about this text is we know what the good purpose is. We don't sure. always know what the good purpose is today. Yeah. Um, but you don't always have to know what good purpose there is behind every evil action. You just have to trust that there's a God who has a good purpose. That's right. That's right. So really it's just, it's not, this isn't a call for you to try to figure out what good purposes there are behind every evil that every ruler commits. Mm. It's just to trust that there is a good God with a good purpose behind it. Yeah. And um, the example of Jesus being the good purpose yep. behind Pontius Pilate and Herod's evil shows that we can trust God yeah. today yeah. With, with the evil that, that our rulers commit. And, and to just continue to add on this theme that we've been talking about choices and God's sovereignty, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible trying to understand both the relationship between God's God's freedom of his, his plans and yet man's choices. Acts 2.23, 
this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan Mm -hmm. and foreknowledge of God. This is Peter speaking to the Jews. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right. And this is such a significant passage because what you see here is that God had a definite plan and foreknowledge, and yet man is completely complicit, and they made the decision, and they were they're accountable for their choices. Right. And that's going to be something that we're going to go into when we talk about the incarnation, is that the Bible often is both and, not either or. Mm-hmm. And whenever you pick one or the other, that puts you in all kinds of trouble. That's right. And so yet, does does man have choices? Yes. Is God... Sovereign over everything? Yes. That's right. And we don't know how they both always work together. Nor do we have to. Yeah. Gratefully. That's great. Okay, let's move on to number two of what you can say on Sunday. Yes. The fourth question. What were the first three questions? The first three question. First one was, um, are, are you, uh, okay, what is it? The similar to Caesar or Jesus? What was it? You know this one. Why did you put me on the spot, man, and ask me? <laughs> I, got it. I got it. I got it. Why is it good news that Jesus was born um, in a feeding trough then instead in Caesar's palace? Sure. Right? And the second question was, do you want this Jesus? So I addressed the unbelievers mm-hmm. and also believers. Do you want him and do you also want everything that comes with him, including his humility? Yes. Um, third, are you more impressed by um, the ways of Caesar or the ways of Jesus? Mm-hmm. And then fourth, this fourth question is, are you reveal here? Here it is. Here's the big one. Are you surprised when you suffer? Mm. Are you surprised when you suffer? What, what led you to ask that question? You know, because Jesus suffered. Let me share a passage. First Peter two twenty one from the new living translation for God called you to do good. Even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Mm. I mean, our Messiah suffered. And why would the followers of the Master think that we would have a different faith than the Master? Mm. You know, certainly we don't have to die because Jesus died once and for all for our sins. And so we don't have to follow his example in dying for other people's sins. But yet his life was a life marked with suffering, mm-hmm. a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Mm-hmm. And so he started his life suffering getting one of the worst births you could have. Mm. And yet he ended his life suffering on the cross in shame and humiliation, naked on a cross, treated like a robber. That's right. His whole life was suffering. And yet we can often say, yeah, I will follow Jesus, but I won't follow his sufferings. Mm. It is, it's, it's, it's quite laughable if you think about it in a sad way, how shocked we are when we suffer. As if we think the new heavens and new earth are here. And especially when, if we understand that all, all that we will ever know once Jesus returns is bliss and, and greatness. Is it so far-fetched and crazy to believe that we're going to suffer for just a little while? It shouldn't be. But yet we are. We're surprised. We're shocked. We have one hard day or a hard week or even a hard year or a hard season or a hard life. And yet, don't you know that that is just one drop in a bucket of the sea. Mm. It's nothing. You, you will, you know, I love the words of what is Keller always quotes C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis says, heaven will work backwards and turn every tragedy into a glory. Wow. Right. Every day you're into further into eternity. You're going to look back and everything is going to be sweeter, even though it is tragic and terrible and horrific and sometimes evil. Yes. Eternity has a way to work backwards 
And I just feel like if we understand the hope of the resurrection and we understand the mission and calling of Jesus, his life and the call, the life he's called us to, why are we so afraid of suffering? Why do we run from it? Why do we are shocked when it happens? Yeah, and, I, and I wonder if it's because our expectations are off. Yeah. Like, like it sounds, I think our expectations are, I want to live a life of following God and that may or may not include suffering. Yeah. I yeah. hope it doesn't. Yeah. So there, there's this letdown and disappointment when it happens. Sure. And, and then we're looking forward to yeah. eternal bliss. Yeah. It seems like the way that Jesus talks in the New Testament talks mm-hmm. is that a period of life on this earth of suffering and tribulation is a necessary prerequisite mm. for the glory that's coming. That's right. Like the expectation is you should suffer. That's right. And um, that convicts me because... I have suffering in my life right now, but not a tremendous amount of suffering, which makes me ask, Ross, are you actually living on mission? Sure. Like, are you actually confronting a sinful, broken world in a way that yeah. it would result in immense suffering to you? That's right. Um, and so, man, I, th- I really think we need to alter our expectations. Yeah. That, um, that, that the pathway Jesus laid down for us is... You suffer with me before mm-hmm. you reign with me. That's right. That's right. It's so good. And and sadly, I think we share the gospel. We, we try to so appeal to people to come to Christ because he will change their life. And he will. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they won't suffer. They may suffer more. Yes. In fact, Paul says it's impossible for you not to be persecuted, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're going to be faithful on mission, you will confront powers and principalities in this in the darkness and they will come after you. You know, there, there's no way around that. And, and so not if you suffer, but when you suffer. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. One, one verse that keeps coming back to me that I'm trying to understand more is Philippians 3.10. Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Um, Living in anticipation of the resurrection of, death, of the dead looks like dying right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Jesus says, take up your execution device mm-hmm. and follow me. Yeah. And we know these things, and yet we just kind of excuse us somehow. I, I just, it, the more I think about it, so many passages are flooding to me that I'm like, how do we have this Christianity that is devoid of suffering? I just don't understand when people talk about abundant life, why do they think abundant life means that they're not going to suffer? Right. And, and that's not to say that God doesn't heal us physically and God can't heal us and, and bring us comfort and seasons of respite. He does. And we ought to pray for those things. You, you ought not to look for suffering, mm-hmm. but, but it's, but it's the opposite. We, we run from suffering. We will right. neglect biblical duties and mission and obedience because we are so afraid of suffering. That's right. And uh, Jesus has promised, man, that if we embrace the suffering, we can have more of him, mm-hmm. you know, like we can lean into him. Um, yes. So that's one that I think it's it's good for us to remember, like Jesus, the suffering of Jesus as a baby may, should make us re- remember like, oh, okay, that's that's normal. Adjust expectations. So like on Christmas Day, when it's supposed to be a very high, holy and sweet day, maybe everything hits the fan. We shouldn't be surprised. We should pray against that. We should pray God will protect us. But hey, maybe people half the people get a stomach bug and throwing up on Christmas. And you're, you're called like, to serve. Yeah, and you're called to serve. And, yeah, and you're like, and and that would worship God. 
probably a lot more than your nice meal, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and yes, you can worship, you know, there's all these tensions, right? You can worship God with a good meal too. And, and I, I plan to, but if, if it goes haywire, then I, I, I pray that God would give me the grace to worship him through it and suffer well. Yeah. And, and I just wonder how much of our expectations are skewed by our country and our, you know, we, we live in something where we're taught that we, the American dream is available to us. Yeah. And you know how much I love this country. Yeah. But that's, the American dream and the gospel suffering are not congruent. Yeah, they, they don't, don't go together. Yeah, that's right. They don't go together. You have to pick one. Yeah. Which one are you really going to live for? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And just to remind everyone, like, this is just a little while. Do we really believe eternity is longer than our life? Yeah. It, it is. It's way longer, right? It's it's mm-hmm. nothing. Like I said, it's a dr- imagine one drop in, into a sea. Yes. That that that's That's starting to get a little bit about the... The, the scope, the smallness of our life compared to all that we will have in glory. Right. We just have such a small view of the resurrection. We do. New heavens, new earth. We just think so much of this life. And yeah. I mean, it'll, be, we'll, it'll yeah. be over before we know it. Yep. All right, brother. Now let's move on to the third thing. The doozy. The doozy. Um, the incarnation. This is a mystery that we will never comprehend but that doesn't mean that we can't know true things about it. That's right. You can know something truly and not fully. That's right. And the danger is if you can't know something fully with omniscience, you can't know it at all or have any certainty. Right. By the way, if you are nerd, nerdy like Ross and I or nerdier, <laughs> there's a new Themelios article. I can link to it from D.A. Carson called That's Your Interpretation. And he go- goes after this epistemological error fallacy that you have to know something perfectly fully to be able to say anything with confidence yeah Um, yeah because that view just deifies us yeah like you you it assumes you can know things with perfect certainty which actually only god can yes and and if you were to be logically consistent in every area of your life then you would be paralyzed Mm -hmm. you can't know anything unless you know everything fully that's right And, and christ does not call you to know him fully to be able to follow him truly right but he beckons you to know him as full fully as possible that's right which is great that's right great brother so so what where do you want to start with the incarnation what do you want to say well first of all we have to we we have to recognize that we are talking about a category that's never existed nor never will it's a it's a besides this one instance yes it's a class of its own absolutely and Saying that helps because the moment you try to compare the Trinity or the incarnation of Christ, how can God be three and yet fully one and yet fully three distinctly and yet fully one? And, and it's people, you sound ridiculous. Yeah, you do. It doesn't make sense. And if you start off saying that this is the one of its kind and everything else kind of overflows from the Trinity, everything flows from the incarnation, like all, um, what I mean by that is like God is the source of everything. Then you can start to understand like it would make sense that human or earthly illustrations wouldn't fully fit mm-hmm. because there's nothing else like him. And just a quick word on that. The argument often comes right at you when you start to bring this up. This doesn't make sense. Therefore, it's wrong. Yeah. But that's not actually the case because if we're talking about God and our explanation of him perfectly makes sense and we grasp him entirely, what we're talking about is not God. That's right. 
if we have finite limited minds yeah. and God is infinite yeah that's right to consider the Trinity to consider the incarnation it, it must go beyond our finite human understanding that's right otherwise we're not actually talking about deity anymore that's right and so this so it being beyond our understanding is actually necessary for it to be real. Yeah, that's good. And, and, it, and it should humble us and encourage us that you have a God that is, is great. Mm-hmm. You know, not one that you can just easily pigeonhole. Right. That, that can be frustrating, I admit, at times, mm-hmm. and hard, but good. It's good that he's greater than us. Like, I, I want a God that is beyond me, but yet can meet me. Yes. Or, or I'm at, which it is that's the beauty is when we talk about the transcendence of God is that's kind of what you and I are talking about the transcendence of God the incomprehensibility of God yet at the same time he comes right to us in the person of Christ that's right he takes on flesh and he takes on our problems and our struggles and he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses so that is the beauty is that in Christianity we have both transcendence and imminence that's right right imminence being the nearness of God Mm-hmm. Both simultaneous, and, and, and there's errors galore in the Bible uh, and, and in history when we pick one or the other, yes. uh, or even in church. If you only talk about intimacy, 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 and not talk about the great holiness, the otherness of God, you're going to domesticate Jesus. Yeah. On the other hand, if you only talk about the uh, the transcendence and not talk about the imminence of Christ, you become very cold and distant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think our tendency is always going to be to try to tame God to make him more understandable, more manageable for us. And the challenge we have is to just let God be God. Yeah, that's right. He is both near and far. (laughs) And so hopefully starting that off sets expectations properly. So that when we examine these texts, we're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense because he's not like any of us. Yes. Right? If he's creation, he's creator, and we're creation, he's outside of us. Mm-hmm. He's like the Shakespearean, Shakespeare writing the story, and he's on the outside. It's yes. just incomprehensible for the actors in the play, mm-hmm. uh, even in that. that and then he short. wrote himself into the Yeah, and play. he wrote himself <laughs> in the play. That's the incarnation, right? Yeah. You took the punchline for later, bro. Oh, shoot, yeah. dude. Um, anyway, but that's the beauty of the incarnation, right? He's outside. He's writing the story. He can sympathize with the characters because he's creating them and everything, and yet he writes himself in the story, and then Shakespeare walks into the play. Yes. And yet, so he's simultaneously within and without. Mm-hmm. It's simultaneously part of it, and yet sovereign over it, <laughs> controlling it. That's right. It's a powerful, um, helpful metaphor. But so when we talk about incarnation, you know, we, we were in Luke chapter 2. And Which just means God, the second person of the Godhead, yeah. Jesus Christ, the yeah. divine person becoming a human being that's yeah. what incarnation means. that's right taking on flesh yes and and that is tricky because immediately the, the question is how much right mm-hmm. like how much is he is he still god is he kind of mixed half god half man 50 yes. 50 or 51 50, 49 to make sure he doesn't sin like how does that work how does he heal how does he know stuff and yet at times he doesn't know stuff like there's times where jesus is around people and he knows their thoughts mm-hmm. and people are like what and at times he doesn't know one of the plans of the Father. Right. So, and I think it'd be really helpful as we answer these questions to just start with a few basic building blocks. Let's do it. So, um, on one hand, Jesus is a person, and on the other hand, he has a nature. Now, everyone of us who's listening to this is a person, and by person, I mean you have understanding and emotions. Like you, you experience things and you make decisions. That's what a person does. And a nature. And nature is your properties of your existence. So what, what, what properties of existence do I have? I am a human being. So I am finite. 
Um, I have a body. I'm material. So, so there's a person who has a body, right? I, I'm both. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a human being. I, I'm both. So I have a human, I'm a human person and I have a human nature. So Jesus is, before he becomes a human being, is a, is a person mm-hmm. who has understanding and emotions. Yep. And he has a divine nature. Yep. So one person, one nature. That's our usual understanding yep. is that there's one person with one nature because yep. you are one person with one nature. That's right. Now, when he becomes human, what he does is he adds a second nature to his person. So he becomes one person with two natures. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's helpful. This is the way of formulating it that we received from our ancestors hundreds of years ago. Church councils, the council of Chalcedon, who very fortunate for us, reasoned very carefully through the scriptures and handed down this understanding of what we're dealing with. Yeah. So we have one person who's Jesus, who at the same time somehow has both a divine nature mm-hmm. that's immaterial and infinite mm-hmm. and a human nature that's material and finite. That's right. Do I get that? Do I understand that? No. Yeah. Because it's the tricky thing is how do those natures interact? That's the question. That's the big question. And, and the good thing is Ross just mentioned the Chalcedon, um, Council of Chalcedon. And if you're from unfamiliar with the council, is basically lots of really smart, mostly godly men <laughs> coming together, responding to a heresy and saying, what does the Bible actually teach? Yes. And so they have their Bibles open and they reason through it together and cons- with a consensus say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. And the great news is that we don't have to take them at their word. We can check their work. Yes. And for hundreds of years, people, scholars, godly men and women have checked their work and they've said, this is sound, this is solid. So yes. whenever we quote councils or we mention them, we want to be very careful to say that we want to value the fact that other people have been studying Jesus and the scriptures way before we did. And we don't want to act like we're the fresh new, new kids on the block and and re, re, recreate the wheel. That's right. But we also want to say like, hey, they're not Bible. They're not perfect. And we want to check. And we've checked and we think, man, that's... They're, they're doing a good job in teaching what the Bible says and yet holding out the mystery. Because mm-hmm. here's a tricky thing. There are passages that speak that Jesus is absolutely divine and in operating with divine kind of power. And yet there's passages that speak of Jesus' humanity. Yes. Like Jesus is learning and growing and he's hungry. Does the divine nature ever get hungry? No. And yet Jesus is hungry and he's one person and yet he has two natures. So basically this language that they create is just their way of trying to reckon with the fact that the Bible says both things. Right. Just like the Bible talks about God being one mm-hmm. and yet speaks of them very distinctly also. Yes. And we just have to say this is mysterious and we're going to trust God and pray that he'll continue to reveal and make it clearer to us. Mm-hmm. But it seems like. This this incarnation in the Trinity is kind of – we can keep growing in our understanding of talking around it. But like to get to the heart of it, I think everyone just kind of hits a wall eventually. Yeah, yeah pretty soon you just get humbled by it. Yeah, you get yeah. humbled by it. Um, so the, the best way – and just and just you know, this is not just abstract theology we're talking about. Um, understanding these doctrines is really practical because – for me, for example, I've gone into like the Somali Mall 
um, and witness to who Jesus was. And immediately um, our 70,000 Muslim neighbors will bring up the objection, how can this be God and man? Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to explain it to them Sweet. if you're going to make a compelling case that they should believe in Jesus. That's right. So I think the best way to talk about this is that Jesus, a person with a divine nature, added, I like that word, added a human nature to himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This did not contradict or diminish the divine nature at all. Yeah. Nor did it intermingle with it. Nor did the divine nature get put into the human nature or the human nature into the divine nature. They're two distinct natures that he both possessed at the same time. So you would, could ask, is Jesus 100% human? Yes. Yes. Is Jesus 100% divine? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is he both of those things at the same time? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. And he always will be even in heaven with his glorified body. He is right now. (laughs) Yes. 100% 100% human, 100% divine. And let's divine. add one more crazy layer to this. Okay. Is that Jesus is baptized with the Spirit, mm. empowered with the Spirit of God, the third person in Trinity. And so it seems like many times when Jesus is doing miracles, he's actually being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right. Which is God and yet distinct. Mm. That just adds another level of complexity that's mysterious. And I think... You're right. And I think one helpful consideration is that throughout the Bible's uh, language about Jesus, it's helpful to think, is this particular event happening in accordance with his divine nature or his human nature? You can ask that question. Um, Is this speaking about Christ according to his divinity or Christ according to his humanity? Because he's going to interact differently Mm -hmm. if he's acting out of his human nature, acting out of his divine nature. Mm -hmm. And I actually think for the majority of his time in his incarnation, Mm -hmm. he's acting according to his human nature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's something we, the the classic passage that we go to is Philippians 2. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's a lot of debate, especially especially in the Greek. What is what is this word connote? Emptying, emptying, emptying himself. Yeah. Right, and so like there's something about this Ephesians chapter. Uh, sorry, Philippians chapter two. It says he did not count though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that word grasp is kind of like holding on to, right? Yeah, like to seize. Yeah, to, to, yeah. To, which is which was was his right. It was his right to do that. Mm-hmm. And yet he did not hold on to it, but made himself nothing, taking the form yes. of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death, even death on the cross. And so it does seem that, and it seems that, I, I just kind of alluded to it, a lot of times when he's doing miracles, he's actually being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I, I don't know how that works. I don't know how he can... S- Sounds like he like suppresses his divine nature or chooses one, but even well, I, we don't I'm want afraid to, we, to say I don't that. Think we want to use words. Like I can't suppression. even use that. But somehow yeah. he goes between them, yet being true to both of them. Well, I I do I do think it's most helpful to think of Jesus in his earthly ministry as operating mostly, maybe exclusively, out of his human nature. And then when he does According divine actions, nature. he's it's in him. In accordance with the power, with of the, the power Spirit. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it's his human nature yeah. interacting with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The third person of God's divine nature yeah. working through his human nature to do miracles. 
Yeah, which is good news for us because we're like, oh, well, that's just Jesus because he's God. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true, but he depended on the power of the Spirit also, like we'll, we get to do. And we'll have sermons on that in Luke. Yes. Because Jesus is showing us a pattern for working divine power in our world. He's not that's right. off on his own in a way we can't imitate and exemplify. That, that's where it really comes home where this complicated, mysterious doctrine actually is very relevant for us is how do we get, have power to do all the crazy stuff that Jesus has did and Jesus is calling us to join him. Right. Let me ask this question. Well, can I say one more thing? Yes, go for it. This, this understanding of the two natures um, and which one he's acting in accordance with and out of at a, at a particular moment, which I want to say, as you're witnessing Jesus in the gospels, tend to assume the human nature. Mm -hmm. It's helpful for answering questions like how he could not know when he was coming back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like he says Mm -hmm. in, in, in Mark, he says, as to the day when I'm coming back, no one knows, no one knows the hour except the father in heaven. Yeah. Even says, even the son, even the son. How can Jesus not know everything if he's God who knows everything? Yep. Well, when he's speaking at that particular moment, he's speaking according to and out of his human nature, not mm-hmm. his divine nature. And according to his human nature, he was ignorant of when he was coming back. Yeah. And somehow in Colossians one, he's upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. Right. And it's both at the same time. Yeah. So that, I don't know guys. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he does that. Yes. But he does. And I'm grateful that God can do things that I can't do or think comprehend. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Amen. And we won't get this, but one paradigm to think through it, to help explain it to people is there's a person who can act out of different natures in different circumstances. Yeah. And and when we see things like the, like Jesus not knowing something, we never want to make the mistake of saying God didn't know something. Yeah. We want to say Jesus as man did yeah. not know this. And you can immediately think like I, I do right now, how can that be? Well, he's the only one who's like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's the only one. That's right. Let me ask you the question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be human? Human? Yeah, that's great. So the the reason why it was necessary for Jesus to be human was so that he could take our place and atone for our sins. Yeah, what's that passage in Hebrews that that is just so important that we were looking at? Um, Was that... that, um, There's a lot of them in Hebrews. Hebrews talks about this a lot. Sure. Um, yeah, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and in every respect has been tempted as we are. This is chapter four, let us draw confidence near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And that whole section is talking about Jesus as the great high priest. Mm-hmm. And because he is able to represent man, right? Yes. As a, as a man, um, but yet without the sin of man, he's That's able right. to make atonement for our sins. That's right. Here's um, St. Anselm, um, pastor, thinker, theologian from the 1100s, writing about this. He says, So, as I showed earlier, the heavenly kingdom must be filled with men. And if this cannot happen unless the satisfaction is made for sin, satisfaction which no one can make but God, and no one ought to make but man, then it is necessary for the God-man to make it. What he's arguing is only God could sufficiently pay the price for our sin, Mm. but it's only appropriate for man to do it. He has to share our nature if he's going to atone for us. Yeah. 
if he's going to actually be a substitute for us, he has to be one of us. Yeah, that's he, right. He can't, he can't represent us. He can't bear our sinful nature. He can't take these things upon himself and offer substitution for us mm. unless he's really a person like us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, Hebrews I mean, is clear. The blood of bulls, bulls, bulls and goats, yeah. bulls and goats don't yeah. work because right. they don't have a human nature. They're they can't not actually represent us. They can't actually stand in our place before God. Yep, that's right. And so Jesus must be one hundred percent man in order to be our substitute. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to be one hundred percent God then? And on the other hand, he had to be one hundred percent God because the debt of our sin is infinite. Yep. And a, a finite man cannot pay for an infinite debt. Yep. So he's he's got to be both. He's got to somehow be infinite, somehow be finite. He's got to somehow be man and somehow be God. That's right. And and we see the only possible arrangement of reality where we could possibly be saved come together in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I I hear pastors sometimes say, like, God could have saved us however he wanted to. He could have just made it so he had to sprinkle some water on us to save us. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that's true. I think that there's only one possible way for a holy God to reconcile himself with sinners, and it's with an appropriate sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is really that only appropriate sacrifice. Right. And and because God was the one sinned against, he's the one who has to deal with the offense and absorb it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it had to be coming from within himself, right, to be able to make it right. Like, I can't, if I sin against... Um, if you punch me, mm-hmm. um, Daniel can't be here and say, Ross, I, I forgive you. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you didn't get punched against. My face is bleeding, you know? Yeah. And like God is the one who is the number one offended party right. in our sin and our rebellion against him. And so he has to do something about it, right? Um, and yet man couldn't do something about it themselves, right? So it, it's, it's a little tricky here, but it's, um, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Church, I, I I know that Ross and I are falling short to show you the magnitude. And we're going to get into more other sermons because it gets into this. So this is not yes. the final word that we have. This is the primer. <laughs> this is the primer. So hopefully we can kind of set these categories. But hopefully your heart is just moved in a state of like, wow, God is bigger than I know. Mm-hmm. Jesus is greater than I know. And that, that's a kind of God that you can trust to come through uh, when things don't make sense. Yes. Uh, not a God that you can perfectly wrap your mind around. So. And one other beautiful thing about the incarnation, when you combine in one person the divine and human natures, you see a bridge form Mm. between divine holy God and sinful fallen man. You see the beginnings of a connection. When God created human beings— There was a connection because it was good. Mm-hmm. The connection was lost. That's right. There, there's no way to put it back together. Yeah. Um, we, the word we use is mediator. Jesus is the mediator. Yeah. He's putting two parties that have been one mediator. separated back yep. together. Um, and there, there's no mediator who can sort out a dispute between divinity and humanity unless he's a God-man. That's right. And he's, he's also the ladder in John. We just read in John chapter 2, right? He's the ladder bringing heaven to earth. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, there's There's... Elliot, there's a there's a missionary in the early Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Elliot was his last last name, not Jim Elliot, yeah, yeah, but yeah. but he 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 yeah. was a witness to the Native Americans. Yes, 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 totally. The yeah, praying yeah, villages. Yeah. he learned the native language. Yeah. he he um in a sense took on a Native uh-huh. American nature, yeah, like yeah. like learned their culture and language. And and when there was conflict between the settlers and yeah. the natives, who who was it who could bring the parties together mm-hmm. and represent both and mm-hmm. communicate? It was, right. it was this person who had the qualities of both of these 
different types of people. And, That's right. and we're talking about something far greater, far mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more distant apart right. from one another. Right. And Jesus, um, in having both these natures, is the person who can unite them. And he does it by his atonement for sin and death. And so now you can confidently go to the God-man to, God to access God the Father. That's right. Um, the one who can sympathize with you, who represented you, because he became one who is like you. That's good. Great. Yeah, yeah it's, it's helpful. And uh, I think we had a good conversation. We're going to wrap it up. I think someone's trying to enter into our studio. Yeah. And and I just let's just end on one more okay. quote. One, okay. one last go quote. Go for it. Go for um, it. Here's Wayne Grudem. <laughs> the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the finite, omnipotent, and eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God could become one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and most profound mystery in all the universe. Wow. Amen. All right. Let's leave it at that. Thanks. Thanks. See you.